0: Positive thinking is not a prescription you give someone who's down in the dumps or pessimistic. Positive thinking is the outcome of very conscious lifestyle design.
1: Welcome to The Ziegler Show, where we inspire your true performance. I'm your host, Kevin Miller, and today Tom Ziegler and I bring you an incredibly inspiring discussion with Tim Sanders to talk about. Love in the workplace and no, we're not talking anything illicit here. We're talking about possibly the number one way and the fastest way to accelerate your career, business, income, and life. And Tim completely knows what he is talking about as he has used this methodology in his own trajectory uh, he spent most of his early career on the cutting edge of innovation and change. He was an early stage member of Mark Cuban's Broadcast.com, which had the largest opening day IPO in history. After Yahoo acquired the company, Tim was tapped to lead their value lab. And by 2001, he rose to the executive position of chief solutions officer, then was promoted to leadership coach before leaving the company. In 2005, he founded Deep Media, which provides consulting services for leading brands. And he's one of the top speakers on the lecture circuit. He's author of four books, including the New York Times bestseller, Love is the Killer App, How to Win Business and Influence. Friends, And that's what we're really diving into today, along with his own story. That book's been translated into over a dozen languages and been featured in what, you know what? It's been featured everywhere. Uh, it's, it's becoming a business classic. So in the show, we cover that things like Tim feels he's the evangelist of love-based leadership and how his upbringing shaped him. His mom abandoned him when he was a kid. His dad was then murdered. Uh, Tim says we are the director of our movie. We have control of our life design. His three focal points in love is the killer app are knowledge, network, and compassion. And we dig into those to really understand how to embrace those and engage those in our lives. So here's some big news. If you'll go to Tim Sanders.com slash Being a bottled in bond product means it must pass a list of seven requirements that set the standard for this quality bourbon. So look for it at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're
1: selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the We just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Show, you'll get a 5,000 word excerpt from Love is the Killer app plus some other goodies. Again, that's timsanders.com slash Ziggler show. Hey, before we dive in, this show is brought to you in part by EZ Metrics. That's the letters E and Z. If you feel like your online marketing strategies are not producing much value, especially Facebook, then the digital marketing expert behind the Ziegler brand, Jacob Salem, is holding a live online training with who we teaching what has changed in the world of online marketing. Jacob will let you in behind the scenes as he shares the exact strategies that he used to grow the Ziggler fan page to over 4 million likes organically, including four absolutes you must know in order to grow your business online. He's inviting all Ziggler show listeners to the live online training for free. Simply go to ezmetrics.info. Again, that is E the letter E the letter Z Easymetrics.info. you can register totally free again easymetrics.info. all right folks you're going to like this let's dive in with Tom Ziegler and Tim Sanders all right Tim to start off with a quote from Jerry Maguire on the you had me at hello you had me right off the bat in your book loves a killer app when you cited Bob Marley as one of the premier ministers of all time so on that note welcome
0: Hey, Bob. Bob's my guy. Um, What a peacemaker. Uh, What a big thinker. Um, The story about Bob Marley was I I first discovered him um, when I was in college. And I had just finished college, and I was supposed to go to law school. And I heard a reggae band playing Bob Marley in Tucson, and it was the closest thing to gospel I'd ever heard outside of the church. So I never went to law school. I actually joined that reggae band for almost two years Finally got my way back to grad school in Arizona uh, when I figured out that reggae was not going to be my career. But I love it. Still do. All
1: right. Well, I, I greatly appreciated that. You know, so I've spent uh, a good while now just immersing myself in your material to my great benefit and looking at all the work. It's it's yeah, talking about ministers and your early upbringing it's, it's tempting not to just give you the title of, of evangelist. And I thought, okay, so what would you, Tim say, if you would attach to it, you are the evangelist of blank, fill in the blank.
0: I'm in the, I'm the evangelist of love-based leadership. I think if I would say there is anything that I talk about, um, it's a thread that comes through everything. I think about everything i talk about the imminence of my being and, and it's, it's, you know, it's just. It's the idea that you will find the success you're looking for by promoting the success other people are looking for. And if that sounds really familiar, it should be because there was a book I read in the 1970s that said you can get everything in life you want if you just help another, other people get what they want. And, and, and that's, that's part of my fabric. That's part of my being. And when I say love, I always think about it in our professional context. And that's simply our commitment to promote growth and success, uh, in other people's lives. And that's what I talk about.
1: Okay. So since that blessed Ziegler book back then, and then into your own, your first book, love is <laughs> you at the top, for those of you who are get to see the video, you'll see a classic version of it right there. So since that, and, and then you writing love is the killer app and then coming to today, where do you see us? culturally, corporately, in that love-based leadership? Are we, are we more towards it? Are we further away from it than back then? Where's the shift?
0: So I'll use an example. It's going to be an ironic example because the three of us may not believe in, in, in this man's body of work, but I just want to illustrate something. So Darwin spent his life building upon his grandfather's work, um, and that was around evolution. And up until Darwin wrote his theory of natural selection, um, nobody in the scientific community really accepted it because it just wasn't explained right. It was all Big Bang theory and all these other things, and no one could buy into it. And then when Darwin had this elegant framework that said, well, it's really just a matter of natural selection, then all of a sudden it became a mainstream idea. Now, again, I'm not saying I buy into evolution, but here's the thing. When I came along and wrote Love is the Killer App, and we published it on Valentine's Day 2002, we had a struggle with Random House Crown to call a book love that's going to be put in the business section that's going to be targeted towards leadership. And the key then was for me to find a novel way to talk about love that doesn't sound soft or doesn't sound too personal or doesn't sound too invasive. So when I read Eric Fromm's fantastic book, on caring, it's a wonderful read on what it means to really care about love, have compassion for another person. He described love like the kind of love we have for our family and friends. He described that as the selfless promotion of the growth of the other. And when I saw that, what hit me was we have, as employees, we have a social contract to our enterprise to take care of it. Stanley Marcus Jr., one of my mentors, taught me the company is a little baby that can't take care of itself. Our job is to be its steward. So I said, wow, I've got to find a balance between that social contract to keep the lights on and our commitment as a human being to do good things for other people in our business life. And that's where I really landed in this idea that business love is our intelligent sharing of our intangibles, our knowledge, our network of relationships, our human compassion to promote growth and success in other people. Well, um, when Fast Company ran that on the cover and did a 7,000 word excerpt, and I just talked to Alan Weber, the founder of Fast Company yesterday, he said that he got a lot of feedback and initially there was a pucker factor of sorts when people hear that word in business, but as they begin to understand that it's about sharing in a really smart way, it's really about the technique of giving with intent, then all of a sudden it became more of a mainstream idea. And then over the years, you see subjects like servant leadership. You see landmark books based on real research like uh, Adam Grant's Give and Take, uh, what he did at Wharton, And... Today, you see the concept of knowledge sharing from a heart of compassion as being more of an accepted idea. And the other thing I'll just say, and I'll wrap with this, is that I, I tour a lot of business schools. I love to go to business schools and lecture whenever possible because they, they soundly defeat me. And it's really good, right? Good exercise. It's, it's a real departure from my association conventions. I'm kidding, association <laughs> professionals. But anyway, I go to business schools, and a few years ago, I started to hear about something that was really new to them and it was based on research all kinds of research and it's called the people customer business model not not for you too that you're going to be like really this is new yeah it's three years new if a company with the intent takes care of its people invests in their development thinks like a designer about their day-to-day experiences treats them like family then the people that work for the company respond by being more engaged and more thoughtful on the job, especially when it comes to customers. The customer in this cycle responds by being loyal, not only to that person, but more importantly, to the company and accepting companies' new offerings. And it is the virtuous cycle of business. And that is especially true because of the transparency that social media has created. I mean, And love is the killer app. I thought search engines were going to bring down the bad guys. I had no idea there'd be this thing called Twitter or Facebook or other vehicles to do the same thing. So now at business schools, it's been taught that it's probably a good idea to care deeply about your people and express that with intent.
1: I love it. This is, uh, I mean, so that, that book, um, you know, first off, let me speak to something on a, I'm going to come up to a, a shallow level, but it's just of interest to me because we have so many people who are aspiring authors here. Mm-hmm. And I do want to pull out it before we get deeper here that you wrote that book. And I think the quote was something that you could read on a, on a to and from plane flight and we didn't need, you know, three or 500 words to make the point. Is that uh, do I have it right?
0: Yeah. 24,000 word manuscript. Okay. Um, it was written in a style where it should be read in three hours or less. It was written in a style where when you start reading it, you're just going to go ahead and plow through the whole book. And the reason why is because it's a book, it's a book that a third of it is a book about reading more books. So I have a commercial for reading more books because, you know, the ABA research, when I got it, looked at it for the first time in 2000 was like the average professional reads 0.7 professional books a year, cover to cover but the average cheap something at work reads almost seven entire books every year. So this whole idea that readers are leaders was important to me, but we thought if we wrote some book that bogged down with a bunch of here for out, thou studies, academic stuff in the middle, that that it wouldn't be a very good advertisement. Um, I had a wonderful, wonderful writing partner. His name is Gene Stone. I bring him up all the time. Um, Gene's behind a lot of the most popular books of today, Um, but I can't always say the names of it because not everybody's so forthcoming that they work with a writing partner. But when I was first signed by Random House Crown, um, they said I needed a lot of help in in the way that I typed. It's really interesting. They said, we love the way you talk, but when you sit down behind a computer and you write things, it looks like you're typing and editing at the same time. So it's kind of medicine-y. It doesn't have your spirit. So we took a novel approach to that book. Gene Stone and I spent a weekend together after he'd watched like 10 of my speeches on tape, and he really drilled me a lot about this framework, share knowledge, share network, share compassion. And then for the next six months, he would call me every other day or so. And I'd sit in my closet, in Morgan Hill, California, I was working at Yahoo. I'd sit in my closet with my eyes closed and answer all of his questions, but I'd answer them in full length. And then he'd give me a preview of what we were going to talk about in a few days. And I'd go off and think about it. And he recorded all of our conversations. I believe it was 107 conversations. So He records all of that. He personally transcribes all of that. And then he goes away for three months and he comes back and he goes, here is love is the killer app. And when I read it, you guys, I cried. And let me tell you why. It was me. It was me talking just like I'm talking to you. It was breezy. It was conversational. It wasn't stayed. I I never thought that I could deliver that. And it was more importantly, error free and grammar rich. Um, And so that book was a really exciting experience. It wasn't until today we are rich after much study. And after much focus on journalism style and editing style that I actually wrote, wrote with a computer, uh, a full book. And I've done a couple of that way recently, Um, but it was a unique writing style. And I prescribe it to people that I have a conversation with about them wanting to publish a book. And then I have them send me something because, you know, when somebody wants to write a book and get published by a publisher, you know, I tell them, and I'm sure you guys say the same thing, Kevin, Tom, I tell them, you don't finish the book, you finish the book proposal. Publishers need a book proposal so they can write a p 9 out of 10 dead deals are dead deals because they can't pencil a p So I'll read their book proposal and I go, oh my gosh. There's a huge disconnect between what they typed and what they said. And usually I'll go back to them and I'll say, have you considered having a conversational partner? Because today, you guys, there's resources like rev.com, R-E-V.com that will transcribe accurately an hour worth of audio recorded content For 60 bucks. You can't beat that. So that was a really big aha for me, because don't don't focus on your writer's integrity if you're writing your first book, because guess what? You're not a writer. You're a first time author. You become a writer like five books later. (laughs) Write the best book that produces the best reading experience. When you write that book, you don't write it for a market. It's a horrible way to think about it. So the president of Random House explained this to me one day. You write it for a specific person. You want to write a real book, write it for a dude. Or write it for you know, her or him, that one person. And I, I saw that guy. So when we were first starting the project, uh, I used to spend a lot of time in bookstores. And, and I still do when I travel. But it was Stacy's bookstore in San Francisco. And this is like 1999, early 2000. And I had been there for like an hour getting books because I'd read a lot and buy a few. And there was this kid. He looked like Bobby Brady. Uh, for those of you listen, listening that are younger, go to Nickelodeon and, and, and watch an episode of Brady Bunch. So, somebody Bob, he looked like Bob Brady. He's got his curly hair and he, he's setting all the books down that he was going to read. And I walked over to him and I said, Well, can't you find anything to read? And he flips the book over, the one he's looking at, and it's some old white guy who's bald. And he goes, Look, they never write anything for me. He goes, I'm just trying to figure out how to get a leg up. And I go, What's your goal? And he goes, I don't know. I want to make a lot of money, but I want to be a nice guy. And so I got his name and couldn't have a chance back then. There was no LinkedIn to connect with him, but he was my muse. Wow! So when I wrote the book, I wrote a book for this guy that no one writes books for. A little bit younger, very ambitious, highly conflicted, though, about how do you achieve prosperity without being a bad guy? Hmm. And that was my focus. And I, I suggest to those who are aspiring writers, this is a very good approach for you two to write a highly empathetic book.
1: which is an additional $84 value. So to get this special offer, go to dot com. Use promo code Kevin, com. promo code Kevin.
2: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's gonna be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight La Quinta. Tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Is that help? I love it. Yeah, Tom, how about you? Same? Yeah, I I love that. Uh I just uh, I guess this will be the first time I've announced that I'm in the process of signing a deal with Thomas Nelson for a book. Good for you. All right. Yay! Yay! I'm really excited about this. And it's interesting because I tell a story in the book proposal and it's the guy I'm writing the book for. Mm-hmm. I was at, a, at an event and I'm telling you, this is how you go from here to here, blah, blah, blah. He comes up at the end and he basically says, I love what you said, Tom, but I know me, I'm going to do that for three days and then I'm going to stop doing it. What do you tell me? <laughs> and I'm like, you're the guy who's like 80% of the people. Yep. Right.
0: Barr once said, I hate the gym because you have to go back again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, so man, I, good for you! Congratulations. That, that's my same experience on who I'm writing the book to. It's for the person who says, "I'm here. I want to get here. I've tried 27 times. What's different this time?" Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. who the, that's who the book is for.
0: My uh, my agent, Jen Miller. I don't know if you know her. She's a great great human being. Um, she once taught me that the best marketing vehicle for a book is the book. She says you got to write a book that works. you got to write a book that sells itself after you take the foot off the gas because all the great books work. And when you hear that phrase from an agent or a publisher, this book works, this book doesn't work, this is exactly what Tom is talking about. A book works because it connects at a deep level with the reader it changes the way they see the world. But most importantly, it gives them optimism because it tells them what they can do and gives them a plan to keep on doing it. So I, I think you really captured that idea. And for authors, you know, when you're sitting around, you're writing a book, and all of a sudden you're writing up all your marketing plans, you're going to do Thunderclap, and you're going to put it in Hudson's News. And do, Stop it. Stop it. Focus on who you're writing the book for and write a great book.
1: Well, I want to ask you on, I, I do want to dig into, uh, love is a killer app somewhat, but when you talk about connecting with the reader and you've mentioned story so much, uh, a part of your books is that is your personal story. I, God, I gleaned as much from your own story and your humanity as the point of the book, or maybe that's what got me to understand and mm. connect with the point of the book. So I, I want to read something that you sent us and ask you, um, you know, from a personal level about it. You said I was raised in a farmhouse in Eastern New Mexico and folks, you'll read about this in, in the book in love is killer app. Um, but you said where the main books in our library were power, positive thinking, think and grow rich as a man thinketh the magic of believing. And of course the Bible in 1976, my grandmother added, see you at the top that you just, uh, shined in front of the video camera a minute ago. And I have to say it changed my life. The book taught me to take control of my attitude, my thought patterns and how to deal with setbacks in life. And I, and I did have setbacks. I went from short bus Sanders, special education from second to sixth grade to senior class president in part because of what I learned from Zig. And I quoted him extensively in my valedictorian address at graduation in 1979. That's, that's amazing. What I, what I want you to speak to, though, is... I used to
0: model his haircut, and I've started doing it again recently. You can't see it, but... <laughs> I like it.
1: You need one of the suits I, I want also. to look like
0: young Zig, man, before I get... Before I can't... <laughs> well, you've got the glasses. you got the glasses. Yeah, baby. So... Well, so... No, I mean, that was highly influential. Yeah. I mean, let me tell you what I really took away from um, Zig's work. I mean, really, if I back off and think about it, you know, years and years later. What Zig said is, in so many words, we are the director of our movie. He didn't say that, but he might as well have said it. I probably said it on his behalf. But we absolutely have control with how we design our life to be a positive and helpful person. Now, notice the order here. It's kind of backwards to what everybody says, right? Everybody says, you need to think positive. Zig didn't say that. Zig says, you need to lead a life that is designed to generate positive thinking. And what I took away from his work was this. Positive thinking is not a prescription you give someone who's down in the dumps or pessimistic. Positive thinking is the outcome of very conscious lifestyle design, Mm. decisions that you make, people that you choose to hang out with, investments of your time for either positive or negative reasons. And Everything he talks about, you know, from how we think about that, that checkup from the neck up, or how we think about dealing with adversity and loss, I keep thinking about it from a design standpoint. Like, how would Steve Jobs think about this? And that is, you, you have this perspective that you can look at your little old life with a sense of humility, and if you don't like it, you can design a certain path so that your life will improve. And that fundamentally is, is how i how I really valued his work.
1: Well, I want to ask you something on that. In grow, so you grew up with this in that farmhouse in eastern New Mexico. Mm. So you grew up with these. I mean, these are, these are the most influential authors. Well, I was going to say of their time, but I think maybe of today as well. And yet, you didn't just go from there, leave home, and everything was peaches and cream. You had some pretty significant valleys after that, do you look at those things? I think a lot of people think, Oh my gosh, if I go after and do that, then everything's going to be good. Do you look at them as no, those planted, did they plant seeds that you were then able to come back to? They rooted to some degree. And even after you went astray or had whatever challenges you were able to come back to them,
0: you know, you can't unlearn deep insights. So they sat in the back of my psyche but I led adversity. Um, for example, my father was murdered um, whenever I was a sophomore in college, and this is an important thing to me because to mention, because I wasn't raised by my father; or I was raised by my grandmother, his mom. And my father had an alternative lifestyle out in San Francisco, so he didn't think it would be appropriate for me as a kid to be raised in San Francisco, right? Um, he worked for Harvey Milk, if you guys know who he is, and he was part of that whole scene in, in San Francisco in the '70s and in, in the '80s, or well, '70s for, it, for that matter. And he and I were going to be reunited because I had won a scholarship to Loyola and I was going to move to Los Angeles for my junior and senior year to be on the debate team. And he was going to relocate um, from San Francisco. And so three weeks before this happened, he was murdered in a hate crime. Mm. And and, and I found out everything at once. And it was devastating. And I remember Billy, who was a very big prayer warrior, when I got to the house that day, she's trying to gather me up and say, listen, we need to pray about this and And I got to say, um at in that moment, I rejected my faith it, it, it's it's so hard to go back and look at why would you do that when you spent so much time studying and, and and being in church and and all it happens so so I rejected my faith at least for a moment, and I certainly rejected a lot of the isms uh, that I was raised to believe early on because my father was raised the same way, and look what happened to him and and I got to tell you, I went from moving forward to moving sideways, and what I mean by that is. Success isn't a destination you get to. What I've learned in these 55 plus years on, on the earth is that success is merely a direction and that direction forward. But when you lose connection with your faith and you dismiss the deep insights that you've been given, you will move sideways in life. And I did for the next 10, 11 years. I'm like one step forward, one step back. And everything that I did, I just wasn't my best. And I certainly wasn't doing the best for my family. And one day... I got to say like 1996 or 1995, I'm laying in bed and I'm reading a book and it's Napoleon Hill, which I'm rereading again. And he talked about, you know, go back to a time in your life where you were loved and you were wanted and you were cherished. And he says, bathe yourself in those feelings and your present difficulties will disappear. And I thought about the idea that you know Napoleon Hill taught people during the Great Depression um, how to be champions and how to think about being champions. And I was also reading Covey at the time, and the two kind of met together. And I remember sitting up in bed and thinking to myself, "My son deserves a champion, right? We're living check to check. He deserves a champion. Father, my wife deserves a champion." So I call Billy, my grandmother, a couple of days later, and I say, "Listen, mom," because I called her mom. I said, "I want to go back to that that senior class year." You know, that I was on top, a state champion in debate, um, senior class president, you know, out of special ed. never. It was such a great story. I want that guy again because I'm not that guy again. So she really smart. She says, well, she says, you, you sound tender hearted, you sound ready. She says, so let me ask you a question. She asked, what are you not doing today that you were doing back in the day when you were on top? And I tried to be glib about it, but she pressed me like Yoda meets Dr. Phil. No, what are you not doing? And I began to realize I'm not studying the right words. I'm not devoting myself to helping people every single day. I don't have a mentee. I used to always mentor people when I was growing up, especially bullies. Because I was bullied so much. You can imagine coming out of special ed and going to regular school in the seventh grade after skipping a grade, she taught me that. The, the reason they, they bullied me is because I didn't love them enough. In fact, no one loved them enough. And so she taught me to mentor those with the greatest difficulties. And I did it. I always had a bully I was trying to help. I, I'm not saying I did their homework. I gave them counsel about how to get out of reform school and, and come back and do something with their life. And I wasn't doing that. And I wasn't reading voraciously. I, I wasn't hanging out with the right people. I wasn't going to church. You, you get it. And, and so as I realized, it was my own doing. There was going to be no magic thing that was going to happen, no bolt of lightning from the sky that was going to all of a sudden you know, make me that guy again. I realized I had to go back to what I was doing when I was on top. And over the course of the ensuing years, when I talked to people who I knew from my past and they're like, man, I'm really I got to get back to that era. I always ask them the same question. And it's a question for coaching that I recommend people ask all the time, you know, people to take a hard look at their success moments in their past and ask, you know, what's missing, what's missing in my current situation.
1: Hey friends, I hope you're getting value from this show. We've got some incredible stuff coming up. From Tim, I want to remind you again, if you will go to timsanders.com slash Ziggler show, he has a special page set up just for you, just for folks listening to the show. You get a 5,000 word excerpt from Love is the killer app plus some other goodies. And that is being provided straight from his publisher. So just a great gift that he is giving us. If you're getting value here again, please give us a high five, go to iTunes and leave us a review real quick before we dig back in. We've got a couple great services I want to let you know about. First is Zip Recruiter. If you're hiring, you've got to know where to post your job to find the best candidates. Hiring can absolutely be easier. That's what Zip Recruiter does. It's more streamlined, less time consuming. So even when you're busy, you can still be smart about the way you hire. You know, quality hires keep your business moving forward, but you also know it can take a lot of time to find the right candidates for the job. So with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. And then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting. So you receive the best possible matches ever. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. So right now, you guys, Ziggler listeners, can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Ziggler. That's ziprecruiter.com slash Ziggler. Again, it's totally free. You can try it out. Go to ziprecruiter.com slash Ziggler. And next, this is one you're all going to love. You've been hearing about Book Bound by the Sea. And you're hearing about it because we know so many of you would like to write a book, as you should. Zig Ziglar was so well known for telling everyone you have a story and something to offer, and the world needs it. Please write a book. So one of his proteges and a primary personality here at Ziegler, my often co-host, Michelle Prince puts on this event book bound by the sea. It's a renowned event. So if it resonates with you to hear things like, Hey, I want to write a book, but I have no idea where to start. I'd like to leverage what I already know to be the expert in my field. You know, I want to be a, uh, make a difference by sharing my story. If that sounds like you, that is what book bound by the sea is about. Uh, It's a three day, one of a kind workshop. It empowers individuals just like you and me to write, publish and market their books. It's held in Captiva Island, Florida. So you get a great vacation as well as the event. It's helped hundreds of authors get their stories out of their heads onto paper and into the hands of those who need it most. And uh, you can do it, folks. I mean, you really can. The book bound experience is again, fully led by bestselling author Ziegler, motivational speaker and publishing expert, Michelle Prince, who teaches everything you need to know to write, publish, and market your book. Your story does matter. So don't put off writing that book. Another day, the world needs to hear it register at. Bookboundbythesea.com. stop dreaming about becoming a published author make it happen book by the sea.com. and yes tell them that you heard it from the Ziegler show well talking about hard moments and reading your story brought me to i don't think i've ever asked anybody this this question since it came up to me it was actually in show 483 it's not that long ago We Mm -hmm. interviewed rabbi Evan Moffick and he wrote Mm -hmm. the book, the happiness prayer, the number one step he had in his 10, 10 steps. He was going to call the book, the second 10 commandments and his uh, publisher didn't like that either. But, uh, in that number one was to honor those who gave you life and that hit me pretty hard. Uh, For one reason, we have some adopted kids who come from a place that's very difficult to honor. And I appreciate what uh, Rabbi Moffat did in the book by telling the story of some of a family he had to uh, preside over the funeral and their mom was a meth addict and did not raise Mm -hmm. them. And how were they able to honor her? And they explained that and it's what led him To, to have that in the book. My question with you is in that, were you with a father, alternative lifestyle, murdered a mother who abandoned you in a hotel? Have you been able to tell a story where you can honor those who gave you life?
0: Um, you know, I have, I have kind of a a, a different perspective, but it's because of my own personal experience. So I do believe we honor those who give us life and, and I have honor for my natural mother, um, and my father. Um, but I also believe that, um, sometimes God gives us new parents. Mm. I got a new mom. Um, and because God had a plan for me and Billy was ready to step up when this went down. She saw that Athena, my mom wasn't ready for this. And this wasn't in her plan and she stepped in and that's why I call Billy mom. And so when I honor those who gave me life, um, I think of Billy um, as much as anyone, right? Um, my, my son, um, Anthony, he's 32 now. He came into my life when he was four, but I've never called him a stepchild. Mm-hmm. Um, he honors me as if I gave him life because probably if you think about it, cumulatively, sort of did. But what's so interesting about it is that his father is one of my best friends because I made the decision about a year after I got married and, and Anthony, you know, it was a deep part of my life. I made the decision that he deserved a relationship directly with his father and he deserved to get to call his birth father, dad, and he called me Tim. And I'm, I was cool with that. And his dad was invited over to our house on Thanksgiving. And we went to Cowboys games together. We became good friends uh, because I do value the, the, the idea that the, that person, that father who gave you life should be a part of your life if at all possible. So Again, I just have a different perspective on it, and it's a little more – I'm just going to say it's a little more inclusive of everybody that gets involved and makes the time and investment. So you can imagine when we all get together and, and company comes over and they kind of meet all of us together at once. They're always kind of confused trying to figure out now who's married to who and what happened to when, and you all get along. And, yeah, I said. It's the abundance mentality, right? Anthony deserves three parents. It's been great for him unless he got in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> then he got in trouble three times. Then it was a horrible experience.
1: Yeah. Well, the reason that you have a, or I should say having a different perspective is why we're talking uh, to you right now. I I want to come back to something. Speaking of different perspective in the book, I mean, one of the most quoted books here on this show after Ziggs is probably how to win friends and influence people from Dale Carnegie. And on the front cover of your book, love is a killer app. You have written, uh, how to win business and influence influence friends. Yeah. So tell us the differentiating factor there.
0: Well, uh, Dale's book was a huge, huge, huge influence on my life, um, and and it was because you know, what he really brought to our attention is that people have feelings, and we should be compassionate about their feelings, and a lot of the advice he gives is about how to be conscientious and generous to other people's feelings. It's been misinterpreted by some people over the years, you can imagine, but he wrote that book um, after being a YMCA instructor and seeing a lot of people down on their luck, and he realized they needed to have a different point of view, so when we wrote our book, um, Love is the Killer app. We were looking for a subtitle that helped people file this book under. So here's another publishing thing I've learned. Um, a subtitle is a, a strap line that helps someone at a bookstore know how to file that book. A subtitle is a strap line that makes a promise that if you read this book, you're going to get X. And so I've always loved how to's and titles. Um, and so uh, just with a nod to Dale Carnegie's legacy, um, the book was really about, you know, how do you win business in this new world? And how do you influence friends in this new world that we live in? And it's funny. We reached out to the Dale Carnegie group and ended up getting uh, an endorsement for my second book, uh, Peter Handel. I'm sure you know him. Um, and they were, they were very excited you know, about the, connect, the connective tissue uh, between uh, Dale's legacy of work, including How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. It's a very, very, very good book. Um, And all the stuff that I was working on at the time. So that was my decision, you know, kind of, kind of a little cute as a subtitle, but certainly when you read the book, it really is about how to win business. It really is about how to uh, model behavior in a way that uh, convinces other people to model it as well.
1: Well, twice here on this show, we've had Dina Dwyer Owens. She's of the the Dwyer group and they uh, Mm -hmm. kind of uh, are over a lot of franchises. And her first book was values-based business or, or values, Inc., and it was about doing business the right way for the right reasons: integrity, respect, love. Uh, as as you would get to, but the big caveat that was really exciting too is they were making about two billion dollars a year, and she said yeah. Yeah, it's it's the it's the most profitable way to do business as well. And I felt that vibe from love is the killer app that this wasn't just an altruistic from the pulpit message of doing the right thing because it'll win your rewards in heaven. But no, this is the best way to succeed in, in life, but even in business into your pocketbook. It's very tangible. Yes.
0: Yeah. We talked about this in the book extensively because we wanted to lay out the business benefits, not that you would do this to get the benefits, but we wanted people to understand that if you choose this path to success, you will still reach milestones in your journey forward that are measurable. So the first thing we've learned is that when you devote yourself to promote other people's success, especially when you do it without expectation of return. So I'm not doing it to get anything. It's a surprise and delight factor. When you do that, you build an outstanding personal brand. And that outstanding personal brand leads to you getting access to people that most others don't. And I experienced that firsthand. It was a motivator for me to write the book. I couldn't believe that as an account executive, I'm going to sit across the table from Jack Welch or give George Bush Jr. advice on fundraising or sit across the table from the board of directors at Sony. Who would think that a, a account executive who had just worked for a guy named Mark Cuban the year before would have that kind of access? But you do. Because people promote people that promote people. And so the second thing that I've learned is that it generates an intense loyalty to you. Um, Because what I've learned is things go wrong. Expectations aren't met. Markets change. things, Things go wrong. And when you've devoted yourself to promote another person's success, they will fight for you in those moments. And they will stick with you through thick or thin. And there's a variety of other things I've learned. But the main thing I've learned is that If if loving people as a leader means you intelligently share what you know, Mm -hmm. you will never get dumber Mm -hmm. during the process. In fact, through feedback, um, you'll actually get a lot smarter. The more you share, the more you learn. That's something that I learned right away. Same goes with your network. If you think of networking as an activity of putting two or more people together that should meet and getting out of the way, and that's how you define networking, well, guess what? Um, you're different than everyone else that thinks networking is a shortcut. It's about getting. And when you do it that way, guess what? The size of your network explodes over time. Same goes for compassion. When you think about how to help people avoid suffering, when you dial into to someone's dreams and collaborate with them on it, um, you not only improve their situation through feedback, you realize this is the only way to live and you become an intensely more compassionate person. And you do it for a long time because I'm going to put a bow on this. If you expect nothing in return and all you want them to do is pay it forward, guess what, guys? You're never disappointed. You never become cynical. You never ask what's in it for me and you keep on giving.
1: This, uh, this piece of it on that, it again, I, I'm so I love that the overlapping messages we have from some of our guests When we interviewed Shanti Feldhahn, she has the kindness challenge and she Mm -hmm. talked again. Your book just brought me the wisdom of it to, to some of these other messages as well of a God repeating himself. I'll say where it was not so much about the end result. That's what blew me away that I've always, you know, I've always felt like you do that. Yeah. It's the right thing to do, but you are hoping for an end result, which yes, we're talking about that happens, but It also is worthwhile just for what it does to you. And I feel like your, your book and your, again, your personal story is just so impacting is what drove that home that you're doing this because it made Tim a better Tim. And you're teaching these other people in the stories that regardless of the outcome in and of that effort, that initiative, it makes you a happier, a better, a more love filled person.
0: It's my cup of coffee. You know, people ask, where do you get the energy to do all this? Like feedback. I mean, you know, to, to see that when you mentor somebody and it moves them in, in forward direction and you see the difference that you make, I mean, you got to gain energy from that. Um, I, I spent some time uh, over the last few years researching motivation from a very deep academic point of view and thinking about what it really means from a psychological standpoint. And something that I've become recently very aware of is that there's a lot of ways For you to gain motivation if motivation is a sense of internal urgency to accomplish a certain thing or perform a certain task because that's what they say it is it's a feeling of must do inside it gives a person a sense of energy and a sense of fortitude and a sense of tenacity if that's what it is guess what You can get motivation from bad places, and sometimes it's more powerful than motivation from good places. You can be motivated like some athlete with a chip on your shoulder, which, by the way, I tell people that's a really bad idea for you unless you're having physical contact on the playing field of life, Yeah. right? Unless you're a Spartan, it's not a good idea. So here's what I've learned in the research. Your source of motivation has real consequences, Mm -hmm. on your spirituality and your psychic state of being, just like your source of human energy has real consequences. If you get your energy from Coca-Cola and Skittles and potato chips, you're going to get a burst and you're going to have a crash and you're going to have health problems. I've learned that people need to gather their motivation from a positive place because bad energy um, is bad for the engine. So I chose love. So I get all my motivation from the idea that I want to improve my technique every day so I can help that next person I meet move forward. My motivation is to every interaction I want to bring a gift. And then I just really bask in the difference that I feel like I'm making in their lives, but it's unspoken because that keeps the magic going. So, you know, what I, what I tell people all the time is choose your motivation. Be conscious about it because if you don't choose your motivation in this wild and wacky media-driven world we live in, it will reach out and grab you. And it may be the scarcity mindset. We're really low on the old Maslow's pyramid. It may be anger. It may be fear. It may be jealousy. It may be the desire uh, for pleasure or the desire to accumulate things. All of these are bad sources of personal motivation in the long run. And so that's why I choose love, because it's good for my spirit and it's good for my health.
2: So, so here's a, just a follow on to that. One of the things that I, when, when people say, Hey, what's the key? What do we need to do? I have a real simple uh, statement, and that is uh, the fastest way to success is to replace bad habits with good habits. Mm-hmm. So, as you were researching motivation, what are some myths or misconceptions about motivation that are actually bad habits? Maybe just a couple. And what are some good habits that anybody can pick up to do that they may not think about. And and I love when I think of habits, I think of termite size things. So a termite, you know, dad said that hurricanes and tornadoes get all the publicity, but termites do so much damage. I mean, billions of dollars and they take little bitty bites. So what are some things that people do? Oh, I'm gonna do that. That's gonna get me motivated and it really has a long term down effect, right? I think if we get
0: yeah, so so here's some of the things I've read that I think might be relevant to this. Uh, That's a really good question, Tom. So um, I think a lot of times we make motivation a matter of internal talk when it really is a matter of external talk. It really is a collaborative situation. So I get my best motivation in my conversations with my wife, my conversations with God, my conversations with people that I confide in in my mastermind group. Okay, I don't get it standing in front of a mirror saying, "Tim, you can do it," and people like you right? So so self talk versus other talks, really really a, a, a misnomer here. And, and it's because it's a, a very easy device for a lot of authors and speakers to use. You don't have that conversation when you're brushing your teeth. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. I believe we should be intentional about where we get it. We should have a sense of perspective about where it's coming from, but it's in dialogue that gives us our motivation. The second thing I find is that we have to be motivated for the right reasons. So what's your why, you know, to think of Simon Sinek here. Um, Are you motivated to get a thing? So are you motivated to get that car? Or are you motivated for your son to go to college? That's a really important distinction. Like when I sat in bed that day in 1996, I wasn't saying, wow, Napoleon Hill's right. I need to be a champion so I can drive a Cadillac. And so I can have a McMansion. And so I can wear a nice suit from Neiman Marcus instead of going there and buying a t-shirt instead. Um, I didn't think any of this. You know what I thought, you guys? I want Anthony to go to a good college. He deserves it. And I thought about things that I believe I would be blessed for intending. So I think that our goal should be something that we could brag to our son about later. Um, and here's the last thing. Um, the, the, the biggest thing I see in motivation that really rubs me wrong is this chip on shoulder thing. When you say, I'm going to take all these critics," And I'm gonna show them. On the one hand, NLP experts have said, well, that's a really good reframing technique, right? So you're taking all the critics and you're stuffing it in your pipe and using it as motivation. It's a cancer. It's a cancer to give, as John Aka, my buddy from Nashville, would say, to give your critics PhDs like that. No, I'm not gonna let some random person's negative sayings about me be the scriptures front and center in my psyche as I move forward in life. Having a chip on your shoulder, uh, the researchers would say, only works in military or battlefield sports like football or hockey, seriously. And that is because of the element of danger and fear. Now, the reason you see a football player say, well, I'm going to take all this negative, I'm going to make it, I'm going to run through that thing, I'm going to get hit, and it's because they're overcoming fear. And most of our lives, that is not what we're having to motivate ourselves for. We're having to motivate ourselves to learn and get things done and do hard work. And there's no fear factor involved. There is a purpose factor involved. So if I were to tell you, Tom, the one thing I would discourage people to do is to be motivated by, quote, showing them. Love That's it. such a negative way to think about it. Who are you going to help when you're showing them? <laughs> Well, I, I'm
1: enamored by you researching motivation. I mean, here we are in a show. The tagline is inspiring our true performance and really taking I mean, motive. Motivation is great, but we, we have to uh, take action on it. But we still come back to motive. We did a show on this recently talking about, again, to Simon Sinek, like you said, start mm-hmm. with why. We got to know our why. So I think a lot of people, if we take the listeners here, I mean, this is a, an incredible group, tens of thousands of people who are obviously aspiring people, or they would not be listening to this show. They'd be listening to the you know, entertainment channel or whatever they would, they would do to pass time. So they're here aspiring. I think most of them would say they have a desire for more. Hopefully they yes. would say they have a desire for something specific. They're aware of motive, but I think we all to some degree have certain things we would like to do. And yet a month goes by a year, a year goes by five years go by. And obviously the, yeah. The testimony would be the proof is that apparently their motive, our motive, my motive is not big enough because I have not done X, Y, Z. And how do you make that bigger? I, I don't know if that's uh, the Holy Grail question or if you yep. have something towards that.
0: Well, uh, I'm such a geek about etymology. The history of words is so important, you guys, right? Because the the history of the word is like the operating system for a culture. Yes. So. Um, I think about when we first started using this word motive, and it it came from, um, it was a kind of a combination of traditional English, late 19th century, uh, and Middle English, and it really meant just desire, and motivation meant general desire. So, so, So a motive was like your specific desire to accomplish a thing, and to have motivation is to have a general feeling of desire to accomplish a certain sort of thing. And I think that's really important for us to understand that the active word here is desire. And the active target is a goal, right? So you desire to accomplish X. And you notice I use the word accomplish, not accumulate, mm-hmm. right? So, so you know, th- that's where motivation has, as we say in technology terms, the ability to fork, There can be positive motivation. There can be negative motivation. There can be generous motivation. There can be selfish motivation. And so what we have to do is we have to ask ourselves, what do we want to have a strong general desire to do? And why is that meaningful? And and I think you guys about like the moment in my life when I chose love um, was not a business book. It was a book by Leo Biscaglia that I had read years before in the 70s when I was a younger man. I reread this book in the late 90s, and I'm looking for all different things. The book was called Love by Leo. He was a great guy that thought a lot about love. And he talks about this this little poem, and and I'll never forget it. And the poem basically says, there are a thousand paths to success. There are so many ways that you can become a successful person. But I ask you this. Does your path have a good heart? Hmm. Because if it does, then it's a good path. And so that became kind of the beacon for Hmm. me as I thought about the general desire I wanted to have in the world and what gave me energy and enthusiasm and all those modern things we talk about in motivation. And that's a challenge, you know, I give listeners. Like, does your path have a good heart? Don't fool yourself. There are thousands of paths to success, including stealing and lighting, being a bully to other people. But if you choose a path with a good heart, your motivation will feed upon itself because you will see in your feedback what a difference you're making in the lives of others. And that's going to be the difference between you and those that choose a different path.
1: Well, this, what, Tom?
2: Oh, I, just, I see the wheels know, going. I, and I've shared this many times on, on the show, but... What you just said, I get a mental picture of dad in his seventies, coming home off the road, three engagements, Mm -hmm. and you know, his countenance is lit up, physically his shoulders are drooping. You know how that Mm -hmm. is when you travel city to city to city and just imagine doing that when you're 75, 77. Mm -hmm. And I used to think to myself, how can dad at that age be so emotionally full and physically drained at the same time? And then I thought about it, and it's because Of three things. Number one, in preparing for the presentation to benefit other people, he's filling himself up. Mm -hmm. Number two, when he speaks it, he sees the audience and he hears the message himself. So that's the audible part of a dialogue because you're in a sense, when you're in front of the room, you're having a dialogue. And then one on one, when he's done, this is the third phase of it the feedback of somebody saying, hey, I read your book 20 years ago and it oh, changed, yeah. changed my life. And so the good path and I look at dad's life and what you just said sums it up. I mean, it's just that reality that, and, and the other story around dad is that at the end of his speaking career, when he was doing the interview, we were worried because his memory was short if he was coming across right. And right. a psychologist, we asked to evaluate it. They came up to us at the end and they said, look, And this was one of the giant get motivated events. And I know you probably went to a few, right? Mm -hmm. The the psychologist said, look, the greatest speakers in the world were here. Uh, World leaders, uh, celebrities, speakers. But there was only one man in the room who was there for one reason and one reason only. And that's because he loved the audience. He loved the people there. You have nothing to worry about. And at the end of the day, when physically we're failing and when things don't go right, if the motive is love, it just works out. I mean, there isn't, right. No, right? It just, it, I don't know how to explain it, but it works out.
0: No, it does. And, and you can't lead people that you don't love because they know. And when that audience saw his countenance, they knew that he loved them. And that opens their mind up. Uh, Dr. Donald Broadbent, United Kingdom, had this theory called Broadbent's Filter, Because, you know, teachers always name a theory after themselves. But basically, (laughs) Broadbent said that the human brain is always evolving, and many times it evolves to avoid depression or damage, right? So he said that at the time, this is like when he started research in the 80s, that people in London were being accosted for their attention like dozens of times a day by somebody, the guy selling newspapers, the trolley cars. And he said that his research says that we're building a denser and denser filter. Um, to um, either ignore, disbelieve, or not hold on to information coming at us. And he predicted there will be a day in the future where 100 times a day we'll be accosted for our attention. And he said that filter will be so dense, it will be a miracle anything gets through. But he identified that there is a velvet rope around the filter called the amygdala, the emotional seat of the brain. And when people express to us that they care about us and they connect with us through vulnerable storytelling, it activates a part of the brain that can hijack all thinking and go around that filter. And Dr. Broadbent concluded with the wonderful idea that the shortest distance between two people, an important idea, is a warm connection. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, when I think about what made Zig so special um, is that he did think a lot about why he loved his audience and they could feel that and it caused them, I would be willing to bet, it caused them to remember, believe and act on significantly more of what he said than most of the other people um, that spoke to them that day. And I'll say one more thing that my buddy, Brian Palmer, who I know you know him from the speaker world. So he's a very famous speaker agent. So he booked Zig on several things. And he used to say that something to the effect that Zig Ziglar worked the back of the room, like to shake hands and meet people. He, he worked the back of the room better uh, than a preacher trying to build a new church. I mean, he really did stick around in the back of the room, not to sell books, not to, Swap business cards, but to engage with people, um, and and he soaked it up. So it's definitely part of my method of operation, too.
1: Okay, Tim, I I do want to hit the three primary points. Uh, from love is the killer app because I love to give folks a tangible step by step. Hey, do this. And these are things that as you talk about, we can all embrace these right off the bat. So number one, knowledge and sharing knowledge. And I love your initial stories in there of how you learned this and you gained knowledge. You started reading as you talk about being such a big advocate of and you're reading and you're reading and you're gleaning and you're gaining knowledge in your area, in your arena. And you're able then to give that. And then in the first story, it was to a client that you were able to give and to, to share love in that way and how, benefit, uh, bene, uh, how beneficial that was. But so speak to the person who hears that and is going, oh, can I really do that? Or am I going to come off as a know-it-all if I'm trying to impart something to everyone all the time? Help us, help so, us reconcile that.
0: Absolutely. So when times are changing, people are searching for answers. And when you share knowledge that you've invested time to acquire and you share it with people to help them deal with change or solve problems in their life, that is the foundation of a strong business relationship. It's what you lead with in a relationship, but you have to commit yourself to being a student and not just an average student, a better student than anyone you know, because you could come off as a know it all. But hey, you know, if you've researched it all, you come off as smart. So In 1997, when I went to work for Mark Cuban, he was a voracious reader. I think he'd read 50 books that year by July. He was like swallowing everything he could get his hands on because he saw an opportunity and he was aggressive to learn. And so I did the same thing. And as I started to read more and more books, not just core to my business, but adjacent to my business, I started to read them. I marked them up like a student. And then all of a sudden, it became my tchotchke, that swag you give a customer. So I didn't give them t-shirts and caps and cups. I would read a book almost every week, cover to cover, because I always read on planes, and I flew 300 days a year. I was crazy, so I, I, I read, and so as I would read a book, I'd study a book to learn its premise and its, its framework and a couple of little examples, so I would express that from an authority, the author of that book, and I would express that in a conversation to someone I did business with, and I practiced it, so it would be crisp and then they would say well that sounds like a really interesting book then i would give them a copy of that Mm -hmm. book along with my cliff notes which would usually be several pages of 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 nice notes no one is going to think you're a know-it-all for doing that now if you just start spouting out what you think the best strategy is for them to deal with change with no authoritative reference then absolutely um you come off as a know-it-all and that that is why it is so dangerous for you to be educated by just blogs and USA Today, which should be called USA Yesterday, and short form content. If you want to understand an idea, especially a complex idea dealing with change, study it like a student. So I believe reading business books is an act of love you do so you can transfer knowledge effectively to other people. Now, at some point, I had gathered enough of my own knowledge as a researcher and as an expert business person, whatever, that I could begin to have my own original content. In other words, dude, I was a cover band long before I had my own songs, and that's okay. So that's what I would say. Read books. Read books like your life depended on it. As a matter of fact, we're setting up a page for you your listeners to go to to get a 5,000-word excerpt of Love is the Killer App, courtesy of Fast Company. And I'll also put there a book list of six books you should read right now that are going to expand your knowledge base and be rich for you in future conversations. Here's the other thought here about knowledge. To every conversation, bring a gift. Going to have a lunch meeting with someone? Do some research, thinking about their problems, their challenges, their situations, find some way to bring an insight, a tip, something to that meeting. Because if you think about it that way, then this whole idea of gain, share, knowledge becomes like part of your fabric and it develops a sense of trust. And when people trust you, then you can go to the second step of sharing, which is to share your network of relationships.
1: Yeah. So I'm wondering right now, you don't have a podcast, do you?
0: Me? No, no, I'm
1: a guest on podcast. You need need a podcast. I would listen to your podcast. That was just off tangent. There's a gift right there. Okay. I want to listen to your podcast. Um, Thank you. Uh, so the next one on network, and you do talk right off the bat about, this is not to be confused with some of the, the matchmaking that happens in our personal life that mm-hmm. can sometimes sometimes get a little dicey, but this is business nice. matchmaking. And I, I have been surprised throughout the years to find some people who, you know, have a golden Rolodex, and yet they are reticent to share that because of what may happen that would have an influence right. on them. How do you deal? With that?
0: Improve your technique. That's what I say. When a person says, I network and bad things happen, then I said, you need to be a better networker. Mm -hmm. Great networkers think about the people they put together, the personality mix, the parity between those people. If there's someone who is a significant benefactor and a needy beneficiary, you need to think about that very cautiously. You need to improve your technique. And I thought a lot about this when I was writing the book. Your network is your greatest. Greatest network. It's the number one asset you have as a human being. You own it outright. No downturn's going to take it away from you. So, you obviously want to be highly intelligent about how you share your network with others. Um, you know, my different way of thinking is that you have to have different conversations. So, you stop asking people, What do you do when you meet them at events? You ask instead, What are you working on? You're excited about. You need to listen more than you talk. You need to lay in wait for them to describe problems and obstacles and needs for resources that might reveal to you someone you can introduce them to. Now, when I started out, I didn't have... Much of a network, but I did manage to cobble it together within the first year or so. Where in many conversations, I'd be like, Kevin, I need you to go meet Tom. I'm going to make that introduction either over a lunch, if possible, or we're going to do a two way phone call and make this happen. Um, That becomes something you get better and better at doing. So, you know, I've, I've got a lot of little techniques, and, you know, Dale Carnegie had all the ways he dealt with business cards. I do too. So when I meet somebody and we have a conversation and they reveal a need to me, if I can think of someone they need, To meet when I get their card, I write down that name should meet Tom on the back, and when I get back, I schedule a deadline to make that introduction. Because if you put a process around networking people together that should meet, which is my definition of networking, if you put a process together to do that, it should have a goal. So early on, after reading the very touching story of Elmer Letterman, the greatest networker in the history of life insurance and the famous generator of the Letterman lunch, he did it every Friday. During the 1930s, he became a multimillionaire success story in the 1940s, figure out the math of goodwill. My goal now is to introduce three people that should meet every week, Friday by three. And I will scramble to make that goal because if we have goals, we make progress, we improve our technique along the way. And this is why you don't need to go meet people that can help you. You're going to help people that later on are going to be manna in your life when you need them the most. And I think that's the biggest game changer for me in the way I think about networking versus what you typically hear from other people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was powerful in the book. And again, folks, as we talk through this, go get the book, devour it, study it, and uh, don't leave home without it. The, The next one is compassion and I'm going to come back full circle. We actually started and you talked about this in regards to your publisher who was reticent to have the word love in a business book. So I'm curious about that because the five love languages, Gary Chapman, a great book, one of the best sellers of all time. And he got word that people were using that in a workplace scenario and just changing the verbiage a little bit, which led him to write the, uh, the five languages of of appreciation in the workplace. He did that with uh, Dr. um, Paul White, who we interviewed a while ago, but great book. Love that. However, I do hear you saying, no, no, just keep the love in there. Keep the love. In, and you've done that with such great success. So I don't want people to discount that because they say, I know I'm just not that kind of per I'm just not that kind of person.
0: You were, when you were a kid, then it got all covered up by managers that told you you're too nice. It got uh, deterred by situations or maybe you said something and people treated you a little bit differently. You don't love people because of who they are. You love people because of who you are. And you can use whatever words make the most sense to you. But what I want you to express to those you depend on, leaders, I want you to express that you care about them. You love them. You're accountable for their success. I coached, I had a, I had a gig yesterday in Palm Springs. They asked the same question. The guy's like, well, I... Saying I love you is just not my style. Anybody that knew me would know that's a real break from my style. And I'm like, well, well, like, what do you say to somebody who becomes a real buddy, not at work, just in your life, that he golfs a lot. So what do you say to one of your golf buddies like when you really care about him? And he's like, Well, I say things like I'm really cheering for you, man. Well, that's it. That's your expression of love. But I want you to figure out what's natural to you, and I want you to have the courage to say it. Because when you tell someone I care about you, I am committed to your success, I love you, you're painting yourself into a positive corner and you're creating a model for the future of this relationship that you will be held accountable for. And that's why we can't just like think it up here. We have to live it in conversation with other people. Because when I talk about sharing compassion, what I'm saying is that compassion is both a desire and a dream. It is your desire, your motivation, um, that others do not suffer unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. That is the definition of compassion, at least to me.
1: Uh, That's beautiful. By the way,
0: that's from the Dalai Lama, uh, Art of Happiness. I have to do props here, okay? Okay. Your desire that others do not suffer unnecessarily from (laughs) fear, from anxiety, from the mystery of what's going on at the company because no one's telling them. So that's a really simple way for you as a leader to have a design approach to being a compassionate person. I said it's a desire and a dream. It is your dream that people find the success they're looking for. Not your dream that they get rich. Not your dream that they're happy because there's a conundrum there, happiness and joy. But your dream is for people to find the success they're looking for. Because when they came to work for you at your company, they had a dream coming to work for you fit within their mental model of what they want to be in their life. And if you have that dream with them, that's what I mean when you share compassion. So the idea here is that we need to, through conversation as well as practice, we need to partner with the people that follow us. And we need to do that with our heart, uh, really focused on this desire and that dream. And if you do that, um, not only um, do you get a lot of great feedback and loyalty and a tremendous relationship, um, they become better people. And that is a huge takeaway for me, too, is that one of the greatest influences we have on people is to teach them to let go and love. And they learn it from us if we do it the right way.
1: That would be a perfect place to stop, but I'm not going to. I have one more question. Okay. Um, And it's going to be, I don't know, a a nugget to leave folks with, or maybe a tease. I saw on Facebook, and I just wanted to know the answer, that you mentioned a new keynote speech called Harness the Power of Disruptive Collaboration. I just got to know what that is.
0: So there's two kinds of collaboration. There's sustaining collaboration. You have it in the silo. It's all about preserving the status quo. There's a crisis. You talk to your boss. You keep it all secret. And then there's disruptive collaboration. That's where you think outside the lines. And you talk to people that you normally would never talk to. A disruptive collaboration example, I love this one, is the two Steves at Apple. The designer marketing guy, Steve Jobs, and the geek tinkering guy, Steve Wozniak. In the history of the homebrew computer club in the Silicon Valley, no pair designer geek had ever teamed up like this. Traditionally, they can't stand each other. The geeks think the designers want to build things that are impossible and don't work. The designers think that the geeks just want to tinker with stuff that's ugly, but they teamed up in a very disruptive collaboration. And that's where Apple was born. So I tell people when you're faced in a complex situation, ask a couple of questions. Question one, who has a stake in the outcome? The person's going to tell you, usually somebody in their silo. You say, fine. Question number two, who has a stake in the outcome? That's never at the table. Question number three, Who has a stake in the outcome that's not allowed? They are forbidden to be at the table. Question number four, who has a stake in the outcome that people would be mad at us for talking to? And those are your four circles of collaboration opportunity because all the great perspectives that you don't have are going to come from one of those four players. Whether it's the person in the finance department that you call the land of no, that you don't want her around, she's going to just say no. You can turn her into the pep squad, you know, by involving her early. It may be um, a competitive department that you've had some issues with. Sales and customer service have kind of these negative relationships all the time. So maybe it's that. Maybe it's one of your competitors. Like if you're a professional services firm, say like an, an architect, maybe it's another architectural firm that technically is a competitor, but they play nice with you, but that would be kind of weird for you to collaborate with them. These are all forms of disruptive collaboration, and it unleashes creative thinking because it helps us avoid those blind spots, those constraints that are no longer constraints, or those best practices that no longer work. And here's the last thing I'll say about that. Um, Disruptive collaboration solves a really important problem for organizations, um, and that is around the issue of silos. And I know you've thought a lot about that before and talked to people about this issue with silos. Here's what I'm thinking. Um, Is silos not a grain elevator? It's not this above ground thing we're gonna knock down. You always hear people like, we're gonna knock down the silos. Study the history of why there's silos at work. Silos started out in the military when they began to first have budgets where different armed forces would compete with each other for budget. Well, that's what happened in corporate America. Um, As long as we have budgets and objectives, we will build silos to protect and hoard. And those silos are underground, just like a missile silo. And they're hardened from outside attack. What I've learned is that disruptive collaboration can build underground tunnels between the silos. I work with organizations that have leveraged disruptive collaboration to take a siloed organization and turn it into a web of power. And I think that's the promise of this approach to problem solving at work.
1: Are we going to see or hear more of that message somewhere in the yes, future? Yes, absolutely. Just okay. visit
0: timsanders.com. Hey, I mentioned to you, I set up a page just for your listeners it's timsanders.com, front slash Ziggler. And on that page will be a a 5,000 word excerpt of Fast Company. On that page will be a way for you to contact me. I want to hear from you. And there will also be a list of recommended reads for you there as well.
1: Ah, beautiful. Thank you so much, Tim. Thank you for being here, giving us your time, your message, your story, your heart, and most of all, your love. We feel it.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it.
1: Well, friends, that was just rich again. Don't miss this. Go to TimSanders.com slash show to get your 5,000-page excerpt. It's really enough to get the real meat of the book, Love is the Killer App. Again, straight from his publisher, plus a couple other goodies there. And uh, if you want to give a love offering to Ziggler, please go to iTunes and leave a review. Coming up next in show 502, I'll take you behind the scenes to Tim Sanders' life as we walk through the seven spokes of the Ziegler Wheel of Life and hear what Tim's daily habits are to keep him healthy and thriving. And folks, thank you for walking with me as we inspire our true performance together.